BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. VR training platforms like the one developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International are helping surgeons train over and over before operating on real patients. As you practice each skill, the muscle memory starts to develop. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. It's Friday, January 22nd, 2016, and you're listening to Inquiring Minds. I'm Kishore Hari. Each week, we bring you a new in-depth exploration of the space where science, politics, and society collide. We endeavor to find out what's true, what's left to discover, and why it all matters. You can find us on Twitter at Inquiring Show, on Facebook at Inquiring Minds Podcast, and you can subscribe to the show on iTunes or any other podcasting app. Joining us this week is special guest host, Rebecca Watson. Hey, Rebecca. Hey, Kishore. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, thanks for coming back. I mean, I'm no Indre, but I'm maybe slightly better than a horrifically ill Indre. <laughs> that is a, a a certain bar that you've set? Yeah. Uh, we're going to hold you to that bar of excellence. Yeah, great. Great. <laughs> set, set everyone's sights low and you'll always succeed. Well, I think we have a, a great discussion lined up. Uh, for today, we're going to be talking about El Nino. El Nino infected your affected your life so far? Yes, actually, because I live here and I'm seeing rain for the first time in over a year. Well, it's rain and it's, and it's not in the form of snow. So I think that makes you happier. Oh, I'm very happy. I love it. I love the rain. So I'm except for I can't go surfing. But other than that, it's so it's slightly impacting my perfect California lifestyle. <laughs> and for that, I want it gone. <laughs> This week's episode is sponsored by Mack Weldon. I am wearing a pair of Mack Weldon underwear right now, and they're some of the most comfortable underwear I've ever had. I so, did not know that this podcast was going to get this personal this quickly. Oh, it is very comfortable. And not <laughs> only that, they're naturally antimicrobial. I mean, I thought that you looked more comfortable and cleaner <laughs> than usual, but I wasn't sure what it was. It's. I think it's Mack Weldon. So if you want to be as comfortable as I am... With the benefit of antimicrobial wear, go to MacWeldon.com and get 20% off using promo code MINDS. That's MacWeldon.com, coupon code MINDS. This episode is also sponsored by The Great Courses Plus. The Great Courses Plus is a new video learning service from The Great Courses. With it, you can watch as many of their nearly 5,000, 5,000? 5, That's a lot. Video lectures on subjects like history, science, I think that science, mm -hmm. science, mm -hmm. and photography, and science. As Underwear. Uh... Science. <laughs> At any time from anywhere. They're offering Inquiring Minds listeners an offer to try the Great Courses Plus free for one month. That's unlimited access to the entire Great Courses library, all completely free for a month. To sign up now for your free month trial, go to thegreatcoursesplus.com slash inquiringminds. That's thegreatcoursesplus.com slash inquiringminds. 
As I mentioned from the top of the show, we're talking about El Nino. El Nino is dominating the climate discussion this winter. Here in California, we're experiencing a healthy and mostly welcome dose of rain. Elsewhere, though, in Africa and other regions, we're seeing increased drought and tremendous impacts on marine life, all due to these subtle temperature changes in equatorial waters in the Pacific, which has tremendously complex impacts on climate. But can tracing El Nino hold the key to understanding our climate record and possibly understanding our weather future? No. <laughs> Good night, everybody. <laughs> well, that's what our this week's guest really sets out to discover. Her name's Kim Cobb. She's a professor uh, at Georgia Tech who studies the paleoclimate record, particularly studying coral fossils in the Pacific at a place called Christmas Island. How delightful Aww, a place is that? That is wonderful. And she's actually using these uh, corals to dis- construct a millennia-long model of El Nino so that we can be predictive of whether El Nino is accelerating with climate change or if we're in just sort of a normal pattern. In addition, it gives us a sensitivity to the temperature record that we haven't seen before. She's self-described as 40% climate scientist, 40% mom, and 20% Indiana Jones. Wow. I like that. That's That's a a high bar. But before we delve into El Nino, and that'll be our interview this week, we have to talk about something that I think Neil Tyson is shedding a tear about. Uh, We have a ninth planet. Maybe. Maybe. Okay. So let's let's give our listeners a, a quick overview of this. There has been an observation from Mike Brown and Constantine Bat oh, I'm not gonna say that night. Well, I'm gonna I'm gonna stop you anyway, because I think even it's, just calling it an observation, it's an observation is misleading. Yeah. And that's Unfortunately, that's what you're seeing in a lot of press, obviously, which is ninth planet found. Well, what they found is there's six objects beyond Neptune, and they recorded some sort of perturbations in their orbital trajectory. And the only way the math worked out was that there's something big out there uh, that's 10 times the size of the Earth that could be possibly perturbing these things. And so, I mean, it could be a space kraken. We're not sure yet. But yeah, what what they're talking about when they say that they've, quote unquote, discovered a ninth planet is that they've discovered a mathematical probability stating that there is a very good chance, according to them, their interpretation of this specific data, that there is a ninth planet that is takes a very long time to orbit the sun. 19,000 like, years. Yeah. And uh, yeah, and and so it it works out when they look at these specific objects in the Kuiper Belt, um, but no one has observed it yet. There's no telling exactly where it might be on that tremendously long orbit, and depending on where it is. So that means you know the telescopes don't know they don't know where to point them right now, and depending on where it is in the orbit, you might need the, one of the most powerful telescopes we have on planet Earth, or it might be able to be spotted by pretty much any decent telescope on the planet, which is quite exciting. That is quite exciting, and it's unknown. And I think you bring up a great point. It's definitely not discovered, but the finding is exciting because it aligns with two things that I think are really interesting. One is the calculations help explain that sort of pertur- perturbations in that in those objects. But also there's a theory that we don't totally understand the birth of our solar system and it would be better explained in terms of the mathematics if there was a fifth large planet 
And this potentially fits into that scenario to really give us a shape of how our solar system developed, which then has ramifications in terms of understanding of how other solar systems around other stars develop, which I think is probably the real benefit here. I mean, let's not get over the fact that if they were actually able to observe this, and they're trying, they're using the Subaru telescope in Hawaii right now to look for this thing. If they observe it, it will be like one of those amazing discoveries in our lifetime. And despite all of the you know, um, skepticism amongst a lot of astronomers and astrophysicists on on Twitter and other social media uh, who are, you know, desperately trying to point out, hey, this doesn't mean that there's actually a planet out there. Despite all that, and and I've, I've seen some of that criticism turned on the researchers for maybe being a little too excited about their discovery. Well, come on. One of the people here is Mike Brown, who helped kick Pluto out of a demoted Pluto. He's no stranger to publicity. Let's put it that way. Uh, And he's he's a very entertaining follow on Twitter. He's at Pluto Killer. Yeah, he's seems like a super cool guy. Um, And, you know, I just want to I would I really liked the fact that they went to the press and they said, look, we could have held this back and waited until we actually observed the planet. But that could take forever. And so this way, we're going to put this data out there. And that's going to let every other astronomer on the planet have a chance to find this planet. And that's going to it's going to make it happen a lot faster. Okay, so skepticism noted. Let's have a little fun. You have a name? Yes, Rebecca. (laughs) We've met. (laughs) You have a name for (laughs) our Planet X friend. Oh, dad jokes. Uh, I'm open, but I do think that, you know, we should stick with the theme, Roman deities. And I think for a long time, Juno has had short shrift. And as wife to Jupiter, I think it would be good for another gas giant to be Juno. That's very thoughtful because I want it to be called Planet Nine from Outer Space. And I think that's um, not going to happen. Probably not. But my bar is as long as it's not named after a body part. I think I'm kind of cool. What body part were you expecting it to be named? For the audience, Kishore is nodding suggestively and winking. Could you? No. S- why are you winking at me? I'm not winking. Please I'm not stop winking. that, Kishore. I'm very uncomfortable. You know, I, as somebody that's a, a parent of a child that refuses to pronounce Uranus correctly, that I'm hoping that we don't have such an issue. And as someone who is constantly trying to point out to science communicators that Uranus is just as funny as Uranus. It's true. <laughs> Let it go. So on that note, we'll take a short break and be back with my interview with Kim Cobb. This episode is sponsored by The Great Courses Plus. The Great Courses Plus is a new video learning service from The Great Courses. With it, you can watch as many of their nearly 5,000 video lectures on subjects like history, science, and photography at any time from anywhere. They're offering Inquiring Minds listeners a new introductory offer to try The Great Courses Plus free for one month. That's unlimited access to the entire Great Courses Plus library with courses taught by award-winning professors and experts from places like National Geographic, Smithsonian, and the Culinary Institute of America, or other co-hosts of Inquiring Minds. The Great Courses series are normally priced at two to $300 each, but now you can get unlimited access to the entire Great Courses Plus library, all completely free for a month. You could sign up and watch the Inexplicable Universe, Unsolved Mysteries presented by Neil deGrasse Tyson, plus hundreds of other courses for free right now. To sign up for your free one-month trial, 
go to thegreatcoursesplus.com slash inquiringminds. That's thegreatcoursesplus.com slash inquiringminds. Kim Cobb, welcome to Inquiring Minds. Thanks for having me. So we're in the midst of a large-scale El Nino season here. And I'm hoping before we dive into the details uh, about your research, you could give us some of the basics of what El Nino actually is. Yes. So El Nino is a natural climate phenomenon, and it occurs every few years. It's born in the tropical Pacific along the equator. And what happens every few years is the ocean and atmosphere undergo a, a dance of feedbacks, if you will, um, that over a period of several months uh, drastically warm the sea surface temperatures along the equator in the tropical Pacific. And that has ripple effects in the atmosphere that propagate all over the world, affecting weather patterns around the globe. And the, usually the larger those temperatures are in the equatorial tropical Pacific, the larger the effects around the world, which is, of course, what we're witnessing right now. And you mentioned that El Nino is a real natural phenomenon. It happens pretty regularly. How regular are we talking about? And, and over what time scale has this been regularly happening? Well, let me start off by saying that since the uh, Earth, since Earth's plates have been in their current configuration, there really hasn't been a time that we haven't seen El Nino activity uh, underway. And this is recorded in uh, the oldest corals from some of them millions of years ago, up to, of course, with uh, increasing numbers of observations in the recent record. The instrumental record of El Nino extends about 100 years, if you're lucky. And what that record tells us pretty concretely is that uh, this phenomenon has a return rate of two to seven years on average over the last century. And uh, unfortunately, we, we need a lot better records to say anything more than that because it's a highly variable phenomenon in the climate system. And the recurrence rate of very large events, such as the event that we're experiencing this winter, um, is much less frequent, something like uh, 10 to 20 years. In fact, it was uh, it's been about 18 years since 1997, 1998, the, the largest event in the most recent past. So I live in San Francisco, and El Nino is obviously a huge deal out here on the west coast of the United States because of the impact of on our weather. But people are talking about this El Nino as being a big deal for a lot of reasons. Can you give us an indication of why this larger El Nino is such a big deal when it comes to the science? Yes. So there's a lot we don't understand about El Nino events and their counterparts, the cool La Nina events. And these are climate extremes that stress the systems that we've put together over many, many decades to function as a society. So in the West Pacific right now, they're under massive drought at the very time and, and associated wildfires at the very time that California is being inundated by torrential rains. And of course, some of that is very good news. But um, some of that, no doubt, will will be destructive as well, uh, causing flooding and et cetera. And so as we move into parts of Africa, the uh, drought conditions there have been linked to uh, famines uh, across portions of Africa. There have been uh, fatal uh, mudslides and flooding throughout portions of Central and South America. And one of the other notable impacts worth mentioning for folks here in the U.S. is the hurricane season in the North Atlantic 
is closely linked to the state of the El Nino conditions. So we've had a very mild season in the North Atlantic this last uh, hurricane season. And as we've all seen hit the news repeatedly, we've had an extremely, in fact, record high level of hurricane or typhoon activity um, across the Pacific Basin this year uh, with, of course, high societal costs with that. So there are very, very many systems that are impacted in the larger event, again, that generally the larger the impacts are. One quick tangential question before we move on to your research is, you know, it's I always hear El Nino reference in generally with the Pacific and and currents in the Pacific. But you're talking about global impacts of of uh, of El Nino, uh, which is somewhat surprising. It, why isn't it localized to situations related to the Pacific? Why why do we see such conditions extend to, you know, multiple continents and across the globe? Well, first of all, it's really important to remember that when you have an El Nino event, the size of the ocean uh, sea surface that warms appreciably is incredibly large. You're talking about an area that is much larger than the continental United States in terms of the amount of area that's warming. The Pacific Ocean covers half of our planet. So when it goes into a different state, um, the rest of the world is more prone to feel it, if you will. But the real reason is because the atmosphere is very sensitive to conditions along the equator. And when you have this large and in, in large area of warming, it perturbs the entire global atmospheric circulation. So those ripple effects can be felt really almost everywhere on our planet. Uh, some places are more linked to, uh, more closely linked to the El Nino patterns, such as the Western U.S. and the North Atlantic hurricanes and wildfires and droughts in in Borneo. But um, there, are basically, the entire atmospheric circulation is fundamentally different this year because of this event. And how much are we talking about in terms of warming right now with this year's El Nino when it comes to the Pacific? So the warming right now it seems to have peaked in the last month or so. And it's in the process of ticking down, uh, I would say, a little bit, let's say several tenths of a degrees. But the peak warming uh, along the equator approached four degrees Celsius or about uh, a little less than eight degrees Fahrenheit. So what that, uh, that was in the central Pacific. And there were a lesser degree of warming areas towards the eastern Pacific, more closely like four degrees Fahrenheit, two degrees Celsius in Galapagos. Um, as well as uh, appreciable warming along the dateline. So you're really talking about a vast area, but the, the peak warming was really in the central Pacific at about uh, closer to four degrees Celsius. We'll put up some of the, the the maps of the temperature data, which are kind of terrifying to look at because eight degrees Fahrenheit, you know, four degrees Celsius, that's a huge shift in ocean temperature. It, it, and it's shocking to see how big of a shift that is. Is that how you feel about it, too? Um, because the way I've heard certain scientists talk about it is that this is a pretty extreme situation, seeing that much of a temperature rise in such a short period of time. Oh, yes. It's it's staggering you know, to me, personally, as a climate scientist who studies El Nino. So to give the audience some perspective, um, the warmest waters of the ocean are typically confined to the Western Pacific um, where temperatures can approach uh, 30 degrees Celsius is about the warmest you know, large-scale temperatures that we see. 
And right now in the Central Pacific, temperatures are actually push, push, temperatures are pushing 31 degrees Celsius at my research site, for example, a value that I personally measured on a field expedition this last November and almost fell off the boat. Um, these are, these are stratospheric temperatures in places that, that haven't seen these ever. And I want to stress that there is a, uh, this El Nino has brought really record warming to the Central Pacific, um, which has never seen these temperatures, even in the last large El Nino event, 1997-1998, um, at my research site, did not achieve these heights. So what are the ramifications of this kind of temperature increase to life in those areas? We've talked a lot about weather, but I imagine this is a huge impact on marine life in those particular uh, areas. Yeah, the impacts are large, and they, they don't just stop at the water's edge. But speaking first to the to the coral reefs that I've been studying for 18 years at these sites, um, when we were down there in November, we observed 30 to 90 percent of the corals bleached in response to the heat stress that they had been experiencing at that point for several months. And we are going back down there in March, and we anticipate that we're going to see wide swaths of the reef that are completely dead as a result of uh, four more months of extreme uh, heat stress on that reef. And that has uh, trickle-down effects down to the many species of fish and invertebrates that call that reef home right now, seeding important fisheries around the world. And it's not just my research site. NOAA has declared a global bleaching event for this year, beginning earlier this year with uh, severe bleaching in Hawaii. And right now, of course, as the Southern Hemisphere summer gets underway, uh, severe bleaching projected for the Great Barrier Reef. So all the global reefs are coming under threat from this event in terms of bleaching and mortality and it has yet to be documented what the full extent of the damage is. We'll have to find out later in the spring. And when you say dead, do you mean dead, like that reef doesn't come back, or does it return in the in a future year and it's just stunted? Well, if the coral colony dies, it's dead. So how the reef will recover in the coming years to decades is something that we will be closely monitoring as a research group. And how that will occur is, is through new recruitment of corals onto that reef. But they're going to be facing a pretty difficult environment where there's potential for algae to have taken over in the interim, uh, making the potential homes for these new coral recruits relatively unfriendly. Uh, research has uh, again and again shown that, that new coral babies like to settle on hard, clean surfaces. Um, so we're really keen to go out and document the full extent of this damage uh, not just this spring, but carry on our expeditions over the next years to watch how this recovery takes place. And fundamentally, the big question is, um, is this particular reef that we've been working at for so long, will it be fundamentally reshaped by this climate extreme? Now, you've been studying corals for your entire career uh, as a bellwether for El Nino and climate change, but not just in the sort of localized timeline that we've been talking about so far, but for looking at things for hundreds, if not thousands of years. Why are corals so well positioned to help you understand how the climate has been changing, especially in regards to temperature over this time? Well, the most important thing about corals is they, they grow in the right place where we have so little data from instrumental records of temperature. And so, for example, at my research site, the instrumental record of temperature 
really only extends several decades. So when we talk about trying to understand uh, trends in this area related to climate change or changes in the extremes of El Niños over the recent past, we just lack an appropriate baseline. And corals are growing in the right place. They're growing very fast, allowing us to recover one estimate of ocean temperature every month that the coral was alive. And we can use these uh, corals from many, many centuries or millennia ago to provide a really incredible baseline for natural variability of this site. And then, of course, we compare the recent trends and recent El Nino events against this baseline to discuss the implications for climate change. Pardon this, it might be a dumb question, but I always thought coral live like 40, 50 years, something in that timeline. How are you using corals to study something a thousand years ago? Yes. So it's a lot more hard work. <laughs> but what we're able to do is use corals that are thrown up on the beaches by uh, possibly tsunamis or whatever it is, very large wave activity, storm related perhaps. And these corals have been deposited there and they're preserved there for us to use now. And we go out onto these beaches of coral rubble and they're all grayed and brown, but inside they contain these pristine white coral skeletons that have recorded the ocean temperatures when they grew. We bring them back to Georgia Tech. We date them with radioactive dating techniques to very high precision so we knew when they grew. And then we reconstruct the ocean temperatures by uh, making some very detailed uh, measurements of the skeletal geochemistry over the course of the coral's growth history. What inside the geochemistry is actually giving you a link to the temperature? Is it how much they're growing? Is it actual chemical signatures that you're looking for? Yes. So it's it's the latter. It's the chemical signatures. But it's important to note that the earliest work in this area from 50 years ago was actually related to just looking at the growth rates. As, as you say, when it gets warmer, if it's not too warm, corals grow faster in general. But the most robust way to look at ocean temperatures of the past quantitatively is by looking at the chemistry of the coral skeleton. In particular, we're looking at the ratio of two isotopes of oxygen, oxygen 16, the one we all learned about in high school chemistry, as well as oxygen 18, which contains two extra neutrons. And it's actually, thankfully, a thermodynamic fact that temperatures, as temperatures change when the coral's growing its skeleton, the ratio of these two isotopes changes in the resulting calcium carbonate skeleton. And so we're not the inventors of this. This has been a known effect for over 70 years now. We've been able to measure it with advanced instrumentation for a very long time. And we are we have employed it to great success at our research sites, uh, tracking the coming and going of El Nino's and La Nina's back through time. How much of a difference does it make when you talk about different coral species that you're measuring? Does that have any impact here? Because there must be hundreds of different coral species that live in a single reef. Yes, that's a great question and one that we're doing some uh, intense investigations around. So good, good scientific nose. But what we're trying to do it, historically has been to isolate a single species for climate reconstruction. We're really trying to get an apples to apples comparison, making sure that we can um, really get rid of most of the external factors that we're not interested in capturing, like species effects, and zero in on the effects that we are interested in capturing, which is temperature. Um, but recently, we've begun to expand to different species, noting that no species is perfect. Every species has their strengths and weaknesses. 
And we're making a bet that it, by incorporating additional species into our work, we will achieve uh, more robust reconstructions along a variety of, of, um, uh, of avenues that we need, we could improve on in our reconstruction. So we're, we're, we're hoping for that, but it's really in our area of active research. Every species is different, as you say. How large of a model have you constructed in terms of a timeline? How far back have we been able, using this coral analysis, to understand temperature records in that uh, area of the Pacific? So my own work across multiple islands, accumulated over 18 years of work, has now pushed back 7,000 years. So we have many different species going back 7,000 years. Um, and then we have a very large number of samples spanning the last um, 100 years or so. And uh, apart from that, people have been working at other sites across the Pacific, pushing that time horizon back uh, much further. As I, as I alluded to, one study from millions of years ago, uh, hanging out there all alone. But then as you move up through the recent glacial cycle over the last 100,000 years, um, you start to see a couple more corals come into play. Uh, but the Holocene has been where this playground has been most productive. And I know this is all input into creating a larger paleoclimate model, uh, but how much uh, has your findings dovetailed with what we've what has been anticipated by other mo models leading up to this point? Great question. So there are two key aspects to unpack in that question, and, and the, it's important that the audience distinguish between them. One is the potential trends in sea surface temperature that have been occurring as a function of climate change and greenhouse gases. And to look at that, we really look at uh, the average over multiple decades within these records and how it compares to a baseline defined by um, millennia worth of reconstructions. And in terms of the march of temperatures towards warmer conditions, we find that the recent decades are in fact unprecedented. Uh, of course, firmly in line with a large trove of observational data from instrumental records, but particularly paleoclimate evidence that the recent decades do stand out against the natural baseline. So that's kind of conclusion number one, which is not shocking because, of course, it adds only uh, adds to a vast trove of similar kinds of data sets. But the more interesting question that emerges from my work uh, is, is that one, which is much more difficult to address. The question about whether the El Nino Southern Oscillation System as a whole has been increasing in intensity or frequency or, or basically as a more broader question has changed in response to climate change. And this is an area where the models do not provide uh, an a, a appropriate or target that's consistent across multiple models and in fact is an area of very high uncertainty in the model projections for future climate change. And they need us badly here because we have the potential through our work, which compares recent uh, extremes in El Nino against the baseline for millennia of the recent past. We have the potential to identify climate change related trends in our data. And in fact, our recent work in this area has identified an intensification of this system of the associated climate extremes, the El Nino extremes an intensification with climate change. And so that has been supported at this point by several other studies that have come out since. And I believe it's an emerging area for, um, for the, the models to take a close look at 
we are delivering some key insights that will help understand the evolution of El Nino over the next century. Given that's your focus, this year must be a really critical year in terms of the research because you have a a real opportunity to study um, the effects in a pretty extreme condition. Um, have you already garnered that data or are you still you know, planning on going out and doing uh, a, a much more field collection over the next few months? So we were out in November and we collected a trove of environmental data. We installed multiple environmental sensors on the reef so that we'd understand how this event rolled out at our research site where we are actively involved in El Nino reconstruction. It's a very busy year for us. We will be back out there in March with a very large team that includes coral ecologists, coral genomicists, physical oceanographers, climate modelers, and possibly some folks from the press uh, to figure out the basically document the totality of the El Nino's effects on the reef, not just given my interest in the chemical and physical characteristics of the reef, but extending also to the biology and ecology and, and uh, survivors of the reef from that perspective. And I'm extremely excited about this, but it is basically causing me a, a huge amount of stress and work right now, uh, pulling this large expedition together during this year. This actually sounds fairly expensive. I mean, uh, one of the things I love as a quick tangent is the place you do research is called Christmas Island, which sounds, which is one of the happiest names of an island you could ever imagine. But uh, it sounds expensive to do kind of field research in a very isolated place in the Western Pacific. Have you been able to leverage technology at all to help with any automation of some of the, the work that you're talking about for autonomous monitoring? Well, certainly we have a variety of relatively inexpensive sensors in the water recording uh, some, some mostly physical variables like temperature and salinity, uh, but some chemical variables uh, extending to pH most notably, a variable that we are keenly interested in from a coral perspective. But really what you need to do, you need to be underwater with scuba tank on your back making a series of detailed uh, surveys of the reef. And you can, that's just painstaking, it's very labor intensive, and it is very expensive. So one of the things I'm doing in the next week, actually, is launching a crowdfunding campaign to help fund this uh, kind of high priority, rapid response, ambitious field program uh, in March to Christmas Island. And I'm hoping it will allow us to uh, take the kinds of detailed surveys that we need to take to quantify the full extent of this El Nino's impacts. And I'm, I'm uh, uh, hopeful that the, the public will recognize the value of contributing to this campaign. I'm curious how you actually collect samples when you're down on the, the reef itself as well, because every time I've ever gone diving, uh, they, uh, I've been inundated with warnings about how sensitive corals are in certain reef positions and you can't touch them. You must have come up with specialized equipment to do some of this collection. Well, certainly, yes, we are very mindful of coral conservation as we collect the cores that we use for calibration purposes of the modern temperatures. Um, but it's, it's obviously when you take a core from a coral colony, um, that material that is extracted in that core dies. But what we do is plug back up the hole that we leave with marine cement. And eventually, much like a tree will grow over a wound from a branch um, that's been cut off, the coral will also grow over that cement plug. 
and, and carry on with its colony and building a, a healthy colony. We've seen this again and again, so we're quite confident about this. On the other hand, what we expect to see in March is, is death and destruction on that reef. And I have no idea how I would feel emotionally about that. Having dove on these reefs for 18 years, I can really only imagine at this point. It's a kind of a sci-fi image that I have. But all these corals that we've taken such great care to preserve, I anticipate may very well be dead. And, and so that's, that's going to be a, um, a, quite a moment for me. So one of the things I'm really fascinated about, uh, about this is there's few examples when it comes to climate change of really tangible visual items of the climate changing. You know, we can talk about the Maldives falling underwater over the next, you know, 50 to 100 years. Uh, we can talk about the polar ice caps melting. But it seems like your research focuses on one of those areas that tells the story better than putting up a mathematical model on a screen. And I'm really curious how well received uh, your work is by people outside the science spectrum, like in the policy world, when it comes to uh, creating conversations about how we approach climate change uh, in terms of policy or just uh, as a society in general? Well, I think one of my experiences interacting with policymakers, uh, of course, here in the United States, most most frequently, I, I do frequent visits to Capitol Hill and speak about our research. I'm really sorry about that. You have to do frequent <laughs> visits to Capitol Hill. I am really excited and inspired by that. So um, that's that's my take. That's a subject for another day, perhaps. But I, I feel it's extremely important and very valuable. But what I see there when I when I go to the, have these conversations is that they're very interested in the impacts within the confines of the United States. And one of the great illustrations, I think, during this El Nino event is the impacts that uh, exist all over the globe with this climate extreme. And of course, we are eager to bring back those kinds of images that um, will speak to the average American to kind of illustrate the point that it's not just in our backyards that we should be concerned about. These are global resources that are being threatened and destroyed uh, during this climate extreme. And I think most people have a very soft place in their heart for coral reefs. And I think this will be a moment for, I hope it will inspire a moment of reflection about the global nature of climate impacts. So are you optimistic in the face of what can often be seen as, as dire lack of conversation and motivation around this topic? I am very inspired by what happened in Paris. And while some of the people who are most concerned about climate change may feel that it fell short, um, I am, as a climate scientist, amazed at what was achieved. Having watched so many uh, conference of the parties at that level fail repeatedly in the face of mounting evidence and uh, you know uh, more clear and clear and compelling information about the science of climate change. So I was deeply inspired by that. Uh, coming together and acknowledgement of the robustness of the data that's driving those actions. So I am ever optimistic. I don't know that I could do my work if I weren't ever optimistic and um, hope to be a part of the conversations that uh, Americans are having about climate change and the impacts and what it means for them and what can be done. And I'm, I'm uh, very happy to be having those on a fairly frequent basis now. And that's great. 
You know, at this point, we've moved well beyond the conversation of whether climate change is happening or, or to a certain extent, what some of the ramifications of climate change will be. I'm curious what you see as the important scientific questions when it comes to climate change, particularly in regards to El Nino, that we have to really address and look at in the coming years. Well, El Nino remains a, a significant challenge in terms of pinning down its evolution under climate change scenarios. I don't expect we'll have extremely concrete answers about that, but it will continue to be a matter of global importance that we do uh, build some uh, robust answers around that. And this is going to be, of course, Exhibit A, the impacts of this event on the global economy and, and loss of life will be notable. And so that that will be ongoing. But I think speaking more broadly to the climate change challenges that lie ahead, everybody is going to need to know with a lot more detail and confidence what is going to happen in their backyard, what's going to happen to water supplies in the western U.S., what's going to happen to hurricane intensities uh, with implications for the southeastern U.S. Um, these are answers that we still have a lot of trouble delivering. We are in the early stages of looking at these kinds of regional climate impacts with enough uh, data. And I truly believe that it's through the look, it's through the generation and analysis of paleo climate records that we will be able to generate a lot more uh, data in that area that can be of direct assistance in understanding regional climate projections for the next century. That's where the big challenges lie. And I'd like to think that paleoclimate will be at the center of some of the answers. Well, here's hoping Christmas comes in March and April when you're back on Christmas Island uh, doing your field work. Kim Cobb, thank you so much for joining us on Inquiring Minds. Thanks for having me. It was great. So what do you think of Kim's work on El Nino? Well, first of all, I want to say that I'm a huge fan of your ending joke there that was so bad. <laughs> so bad. How long did it take you to think of your Christmas pun? How long of a shower did I have to take after <laughs> telling that joke? Is that what you're asking? I know mine was at least 40 minutes. So <laughs> There is a drought still. El Nino aside. <laughs> Good point. Uh, I, I find it fascinating. I It hadn't occurred to me before how coral might hold all of this information about our past. It's really fascinating. I think the sensitivity of the coral record, especially using those ge geochemical reactions, I was not something I was expecting. And I think it um, we're on a limited timescale here. Actually, uh, just yesterday um, on Twitter, uh, Kim announced that a number of people were killed on Christmas Island due to um, storm sur uh, surge from El Nino. Oh, my. There are four people killed, and there's potential that some of those coral fossil records might be get washed away. Uh, and I encourage folks to follow Kim on Twitter. She's a great follow at Corals and Caves. And she's soon going to be launching a crowdfunding campaign uh, to get more researchers out to Christmas Island to study the record before it potentially disappears. I do. I, I took slight issue, unfortunately, with her optimism when at one point she says that most people care deeply about coral. Unfortunately, I don't think most people even know what coral is. Most people don't live by the ocean and the most people who do live by the ocean don't think about it on a day-to-day -day basis, I would say. And I think that 
you know, it's a lovely sentiment that people might care that much. But I think we have a lot of work to do in educating people about our ocean's resources and telling them exactly why they're so important. I completely share your skepticism. And that's why I'm excited about projects like this, because they're exceptionally visual. Like she can hold up something that is a tangible piece that's documenting climate change. And we only see that in limited areas um, in this research field. But I kind of think she probably has to be optimistic to get through her day. It's probably a, 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 a black hole to be pessimistic and be a climate change researcher right now. Absolutely. And I don't want to encourage pessimism. (laughs) I just want to encourage other science communicators who listen to this, even if you don't consider yourself a science communicator, you know, if you heard about this story and you find it interesting, follow her on Twitter and tell your friends and tell your family about it and teach your kids about what coral is and why it's so important. I, I think that we... I just don't want people to be complacent about what's happening and to think, well, everybody else cares and they're doing something about it. They're not. You know, they don't care. We need to make people care. I think that's a beautiful sentiment to end the show on. So that's it for another episode. I want to thank our amazing guest host, Rebecca Watson, for joining us this week. Thank you. Where can folks find you and keep up to date on what you're up to? Well, you can find me on Twitter at Rebecca Watson or my website, Skepchick, S-K-E-P-C-H-I-C-K dot org. And once again, this episode is sponsored by The Great Courses Plus. The Great Courses Plus is a new video learning service from The Great Courses. With it, you can watch as many of their nearly 5,000 video lectures on subjects like history, science, and photography at any time from anywhere. They're offering Inquiring Minds listeners an offer to try The Great Courses Plus free for one month. That's unlimited access to the entire Great Courses Plus library, all completely free for a month. To sign up, now for your free one-month trial, go to thegreatcoursesplus.com slash inquiringminds. That's thegreatcoursesplus.com slash inquiringminds. You can find us online at inquiringshow.tumblr.com, on Twitter at inquiringshow, on Facebook at slash podcast, and you can send us comments, feedback, future guest ideas, names for Planet X, or anything else you'd like to inquiringminds at climatedesk.org. Inquiring Minds is produced by Starkiller Adam Isaac in cooperation with The Climate Desk. Our music is provided by award-winning producer Rian Sheehan. Our research assistant is Caitlin Smith. Indre will be back next week, but I'm your host, Kishore Hari. You can find me on Twitter at ScienceKish. See you next week. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America.